Now join me in the New Testament reading from Colossians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossa, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. It's such a joy to be with you this morning. After an absence of a year and a half or longer, it seems like I have slept through how many days. But it's always a joy to be with Christian brothers and sisters, and especially our new friends at One Inch and Hope. I want to thank Pastor Will for his gracious invitation to share the pulpit with you this morning. And uh, I want to especially uh, uh, thank him and, and rejoice and thank God for him uh, that I've gotten to know him, uh, even though just a little bit, but I see him as a man of God and a person that I have great respect for. Let us bow in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our prayer. Amen. We are living in the midst of a great social change. Even though many Christians may not know it, we have been taken capture by the secular culture, and like Daniel and his friends, we have become exiles in our own country. Evangelical social critic Os Guinness warns in his book, The Last Call for Liberty, that America is facing the greatest crisis since the Civil War, and it is threatening 
the character of our nation and the meaning of freedom. But the roots of the crisis is deeper than most people realize. A Chinese saying goes something like this. The fish do not know that it's wet. I think what's happening now can best be understood by looking back to the 60s when I first came to Iowa City to work with students. The year was 1967. My friends in Michigan had warned me, they're all farmers there, they want to accept you, don't go. But little did they know that Iowa City was where I made many lifelong friends, not to mention of my lovely wife, including a professor in theater and rhetoric originally from New Zealand who had just published his memoir with a chapter called Bright Fields of Iowa. The following year, 1968, was the height of the civil rights movement and the year Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy were assassinated. Other movements, such as the free speech movement led by Marius Avio of the University of Berkeley, women's movement, the sexual revolution, the term coined by anarchists and Freudian and Freudian sociologist Willem Reich, who actually influenced Norman Miller, some of you have read his novels, and Hillary Clinton. And the anti-war movement influenced by Marxist theoretician Herbert Marcuse and students were talking about him a lot, even though they half of them don't really know and maybe more than half what he was talking about. And the other half that thought of him as a, such a, a, a great mind have never read him or some of them have not even heard of him. But these movements then echo the call of the civil rights movement and call the status quo into question. Since the 60s, according to Os Guinness, the left has been characterized by distancing themselves from the America's past, unease with white dominance, open animosity toward religion, and a proneness to respect the flag because of the Founding Fathers' failure to address the evil of slavery, treatment of women, and of the Native Americans, and it has festered like an open wound. Last May, we saw the outbursts of that pent-up frustration in protests, some of which were peaceful, but some broke out in mob violence led by then-obscure group Black Lives Matter on hundreds of cities that destroyed the businesses, many of them, owned by innocent black Americans and new immigrants in the aftermath of George Floyd's tragic death. And the weeks leading to July 4 demonstrators succeeded in defacing and hauling down statues of figures like George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Ulysses Grant, and even Columbus, 
and led our friend Marilyn Robinson to lament that they were busy destroying the landmarks that otherwise would help us orient ourselves. What's happening now and in the 60s can be traced back to the Italian Marxist theoretician Antonio Gramsci, who while imprisoned by Mussolini said that Marx was wrong. It was not a class struggle, it was a struggle in culture. Then a young disciple of his, Rudy Roitzky, a Marxist political activist in the German student movement in 1968, called for a long march through the institutions, such as colleges and universities, the press and the media, Hollywood, entertainment, government agencies, including the military and the high tech. And what happened next is what shaped the present polarization. American liberalism, which dominated many elite academic institutions, as well as public universities like the University of Iowa and Iowa State, and leaders of many mainline churches that I worked with were co-opted by the radical left and lured sharply to the left because they have severed their ties from the Judeo-Christian roots. Many liberal elites joined the radical left, or sometimes it's called Western or cultural Marxists of today. And the shift surprised and confused many, especially those who escaped communism from places like Cuba, Venezuela, Vietnam, Cambodia, and China. Ask Guinness, share an exchange he had with the dean of the business school of one of China's prestigious universities, who invited him to address the forum of Chinese CEOs. As they were walking back to the lecture hall from the closing dinner, the dean said, allow me to ask a question I didn't want to ask in public. What am I missing? We in China are fascinated by Christian roots of the Western past in order to see what we can learn for the sake of China's future. But you in the West are cutting yourself off from your roots. What am I missing? And what happens if this continues? Sadly, the cultural elite, so-called Western Marxists, do not see the flaws of their cultural projects and focus only on purging any blemish of our past, very much like the Red Guards of China during the Cultural Revolution from 1966 to 79. And when I visited China in 1979, I could see the evidences of their destruction way back. What cultural Marxists 
target was on religious believers and the conservatives, but true liberalism and genuine diversity became the unintended casualties. A book that moved me deeply was a book by British author and associate editor of Spectator, Douglas Murray, The Madness of Crowds. In the book, he decried the fact that just as the civil rights movement was near the point of victory, everything seemed to sour. Just as things appeared to be better than ever before, the rhetoric began to suggest things had not been worse. And suddenly, everything seemed to be about race. To be sure, we Christians believe that there must be genuine repentance for the wrongs, including racism, sexism, and injustices. But to exploit guilt to gain power and use racism to fight against racism is a far cry from the dream of Martin Luther King Jr., which is rooted in the Old Testament prophets like Amos, Jeremiah, and Malachi. Is there hope for us? Or are we going to be like China? We know that as Christians, we're always on the side of hope because God is in control of all things. And this is what the psalmist reminds us in Psalm 46, that nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall, but the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I believe that the choices we make now will make a big difference on the future of the church, including one ancient hope and the world. And for asking us, even including the humanity. But to meet that challenge, it is necessary not only to know what we believe and why, but to live what we believe in a decisive and conscious way, nurturing our faith as a total response to Jesus Christ. In other words, we need to discover or rediscover exactly who we are and what God wants us to do and let Christ have more and more of us. In her book, Who Are We? or Who Are We? Jean Bethke L. Stain formerly of University of Chicago, and I was glad that I met him a few, met her a few years ago. Unfortunately, as I've gotten to know her a little bit, she passed away. But Jean Erstein lament the fact that we 21st century creatures no longer think of ourselves as belonging to anyone or anything. 
We do not belong. We own, we possess. But what we own and possess, she says, and the projects we dedicated ourselves to fail to satisfy. Our triumphs ring hollow. Our victories so often turn to ashes. Who are we? She asked. We are creatures who have forgotten what it means to be faithful to something other than ourselves. David Brooks, who appears in PBS News Hour, reminds us in his book, The Road to Character, that who we are is not, who we really are is not the resume virtues, achieving wealth, fame, and status, but the eulogy virtues, those that exist at the core of our being, kindness, bravery, honesty, and faithfulness. Who are we? Are we more like the 21st century creatures that we do not belong, but we own, we possess, and we have forgotten what it means to be faithful? Contrast that with the words from the Heidelberg Catechism that some of us are familiar with. And the very first question asked is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer, that I'm not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Faithfulness is undeviating loyalty to a person or cause. And even the atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche saw with great clarity this area of spiritual truth when he said that the essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be long obedience in the same direction. Who are we? We belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's why we're also people of hope. Notice that Paul does not say in verse 5 that it's our faith and love that gives us hope, but rather it is hope, the anticipation of the future reality, or from Paul's words, from the hope store up for you in heaven that motivates us to believe and to be faithful and to love others. For the materialistic secularists, the unseen is unreal. Hinduism says the seen, the materialistic world is not real. It's the unseen world. But for the Christian believers, the unseen is more real than the seen. Who are we? We are people of hope because God is faithful. Then 
what are we doing here? Paul says, to lead a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way. When knowledge is reduced to mere intellectual exercise and Christian life reduced to a set of rules, then it produces what church historian Richard Lovelace calls dead goodness or surface righteousness. And that's what the false teachers in Colossians were. That's why Paul insists that it involves every part of us to lead a life worthy of the Lord. The total being, heart, body, and mind. That's why Jesus teaches us to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not our mind only, but all of our mind and all of our heart, soul, and strength. I don't know about you, but it helps me in my struggle to understand those who control the culture today, the cultural elite, the liberal Marxists. And it helps me to think of them as people of a new religious cult, similar to the false teachers Paul warns the Colossians about because they demand perfection and claim to have new insight into the power of evil, especially racism. And yet, in reality, they exploit guilt to gain power and stoke the problems rather than solve them. There's no understanding of forgiveness and no room for grace. But for Paul, Christ is unique and his blessings flow as far as the curse is found, as the Christmas carol says. That's why he is sufficient to meet all of our needs and the needs of the world. Samuel Wells, who had a seven-year stint as dean of the chapel at Duke University, says, there is no hope outside of Christ, but there is limitless hope in Christ. That's also why I want to call your attention to verse 11. Paul says, being strengthened with all, all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. That's from verses 11 and 12. It sounds anticlimactic, doesn't it? Perhaps even a little let down. Paul does not say what we would like him to say, that the outworking of this power is to show spectacular wonders or miracles, but power for all endurance and patience. 
But why do we need endurance and power more than miracles? Because we live in a real world. Because there's no utopian heaven on earth. History tells us any ideology that believes in utopian dream, even including the French Revolution in 1789, that was certainly the fruit of the Enlightenment, and the Russian Revolution in 1917, and the Chinese Revolution in 1949, would inevitably lead to an end in violence and death. Endurance is to have patience while facing suffering, persecution, and hardships. And patience is to persist even with difficult people, not with resignation, but with joy, according to verse 12. Joy under pressure is one of the miracles of God's work in his people. This is the area that I continue to strive and struggle with. Pray for me, and I shall do the same for you. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, to whom shall we go but to you? For you alone have the words of eternal life. You have called us to be your faithful people in this unique time, in this unique place, with its unique temptations and challenges. Give us wisdom and give us courage so that we may lead a life worthy of your high calling. In your name we pray. Amen.